you have a Bible, open it up again to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we are going to finish out the parable of the wheat and the weeds today. I'm going to read uh, verse 30, and then I'm going to read verses 40 through 43. We've, we've read all of the, the parable and the explanation of the parable for the past two weeks, and so I'm just going to read uh, the sections that we're going to be focusing on today. Uh, Verse 30, and then verse 40 through 43. Verse 30 begins, remember this is the master speaking to his servants in this story. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 40, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's Word. You may have a seat. In Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4, we read the following words. Remember, this is, this is a prophecy. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Now Jesus read from this prophecy. He read a, a piece of this prophecy one time in the synagogue. And we're told that, that He read it and then he, he closed up the scroll and He said, Today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing, and he sat down. Now, you have to understand the way the Jewish mind works and the way Jewish literature works and all of Scripture. They didn't have chapters. They didn't have verses like we have. And so when he read what he read, all of the Jews who knew their Torah, their, their Tanakh, they would have known this section. When he began to read, they would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would have been able to complete the rest of it. Just like if I were to say, Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound, you would be able to finish saved a wretch like me. That's how they thought of their scriptures. Just like when Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have been able to finish that psalm, recognizing it as a song that they sang all the time from their songbook. He read this prophecy in their hearing and he said, Today, this is fulfilled. But there was no vengeance of our God when he read it. There were still poor all around when he read that psalm. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. He was poor. There were still brokenhearted people all over the place. His own forerunner, John the Baptist, his cousin, was in prison awaiting, unbeknownst to him, his execution. 
His own people, the Jewish people, were under control of Rome. Now, some had said after they saw his miracles, they said, can this be the son of David? In other words, could this be our king? Could this maybe be the one that we've been waiting for? And, and, and if you were a little more skeptical, you would have asked, how could this Jesus and this ragtag group of 12 men bear any semblance to the kingdom of heaven? To the Messiah that we have been waiting for? How can God's kingdom be here now among us in our midst and yet the just and the unjust still live together? They're all mixed in together. They're roaming free as if there's no one to enforce God's law. God's not coming in vengeance. There's, there's people who are breaking God's law everywhere and He just lets it go. What we saw last week is that Jesus is teaching in this parable that the kingdom of heaven is, in fact, a present reality. It is here. He ushered it in when he came in spite of the presence of evil, continuing evil, and it's going to be that way. And we're going to talk today about the second part, the, the, the second point that I made two weeks ago in this parable, and this is the main point, the separation of the wicked unto judgment and the righteous unto glory is inevitable, but not until the end of the age. The separation of the wicked unto judgment, it's inevitable. It, it will happen. And the separation of the, the, the righteous unto glory is inevitable. It will happen, just not yet. And we have no reason to assume that just because the kingdom is present, that these things are supposed to be happening right now. We can, we can wait because the Bible says, in essence, you just have to wait. It's here, but not yet. And so we're still waiting. So that's the point. Now last week, we looked at verses 24 through 29 in the parable. And we, we saw this story. Jesus gives a story of a farmer who sowed good seed in his field. But then while his servants are sleeping, an enemy comes and sows weeds all throughout his good seed in his field. And as both plants grow, by the time the wheat bears grain and it shows itself to be wheat, the weeds also show themselves to be weeds because they don't bear grain. They're no good. And so the servants come and they say, Master, would you like us to go and pull out all the weeds? And his response was, no. And this is compared to, in the explanation, sons of the kingdom, Christians, whom Jesus has planted all throughout this age, distributed all throughout the present age, from the time of Jesus until He returns, all over the globe there are Christians. God has His people, but at the same time, Satan has His sons, sons of the evil one, and we will all exist side by side along with one another until he returns. And we have to live in light of this fact, or in light of these facts, not in denial of them, not acting like evil doesn't exist, not trying to hide from it or run away from it, because we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. We, we don't shrink back. We don't cower in fear. We are bold. And we live and we act from a position of victory. And remember the servants again, they asked the farmer, do you want us to go and uproot the weeds? And his answer was, no, because you might hurt the wheat. Let both of them grow together, he says. It would be better to just let them all grow together than to try to pull up the weeds and we'll worry about it at the end. When the end comes, when the harvest time comes, then we'll pull it all out together and we'll deal with separation. So that's kind of where we pick up today after the farmer answers the two questions and he says no in verse 30. That's where we're picking up. So what I want to do again is, is break it up into two main headings. We'll look at the parable and we'll finish it out. First main heading. And under the parable, we'll see the farmer's solution to the problem. And then under the second heading, the explanation of the parable, we'll see in verse 40, 
The explanation simply stated, and then in verses 41 through 43, a detailed account of the end of the age. We get to talk about eschatology today, the study of the end times. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen at the end times. Jesus lays it out here very clearly. I really don't understand what all of the debate is about. The debate is, um, he lays it out pretty simply exactly what's going to happen, and so we'll get to talk about that. So, heading number one, the parable. And in verse 30, we have the farmer's solution to the attempted sabotage of this enemy. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. Now, we're not all farmers. As a matter of fact, I would imagine the majority of us are not farmers, but I bet we know what the harvest is. If I were to say, what is the harvest? Our answer would not be, oh, that's the time when you pull up the weeds. Because that's not what harvest time is. Harvest time is the time when you gather all of your produce. You, you, you uh, take inventory and you finally get to see what you've got. And you, you collect all of your stuff and you, like it says here, he's going to store it into his barn. So the farmer's goal and the farmer's purpose is to gather his wheat. His heart is set on the wheat. And so this whole process, his whole solution to the problem is centered around or dictated by the production of the wheat. Not the weeds. They're going to deal with the weeds, but his, his, his answer is just let it grow until the harvest, the time when I can deal with the wheat. And as we're dealing with the wheat and getting the wheat prepared, I'll deal with the weeds at the same time. So let both grow together until the harvest. Then he says, at harvest time, I will tell the reapers. Here's what he's going to tell them. Gather the weeds first to be burned or, and bind them in bundles to be burned. Now in Matthew 6.30, Jesus made reference to the grass of the field that is gathered and burned in the oven. A lot of times what they would do would, would be to just gather up weeds, useless grass, and put it in their ovens in their home and burn it just to get the oven hot. Sometimes they would take weeds like this and gather them in bundles to burn just to get rid of the weeds. The picture here, when he says gather them in bundles to be burned, is we're going to destroy the weeds. The weeds are going to be done away with as something that is either only beneficial in its destruction or not beneficial at all. The, the, the best case scenario for the weeds is they're useful because they are being destroyed. But they're going to be destroyed. But, he says, he's going to tell his reapers, gather the wheat into my barn. Now, wheat was what he planted. That was the good seed. Wheat was good for food. They would take it to the threshing floor. They would thresh it. The wind would blow away the, tr the chaff. They would gather the heads of grain. And they could, they could make bread and flour. And all. They, they, it was useful. This was their food. The, the, probably one of the main things that they would use for food. And so he would gather the wheat and store it up. Why? Because it's valuable. We're going to keep the wheat because it's valuable. He has a special place in his barn just for the wheat, it's that valuable. As a matter of fact, he's probably got a barn, if not a couple barns, just for the wheat. Because it's that valuable. He's a farmer. He's got wheat barns. He didn't have a barn to park his tractor, his implements. They didn't have that stuff. So he's going to gather the wheat because it's valuable, and he's going to store it up. The main point here in the, at the end of the, the parable, the, to close it out, is is the response to the enemy's attack. The enemy has tried to sabotage the plans of the farmer. The servants come and say, do you want us to go ahead and try to fix the problem? And the farmer says, no, I've got a plan. It will be handled. But the time frame of it being handled is later. Not now. It will be at the end. The time will come to separate the wheat and the weeds just not yet. That's heading number one, the parable. Now let's move to the explanation. Heading number two, the explanation of the parable. And we'll pick up in verse 40 where we left off 
last week. In verse 40, we have the, the heart of the matter simply stated. He just lays it out in clear language. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Just as, so it will be. We have a simile, a comparison or an analogy. And he, he just lays it out as clear as it could be. He tells us exactly what the point of the parable is. Up until this point in the explanation, remember, he just laid out all of the different players like the credits at the end of a movie. The harvest is the end of the age, the, reaper are the, the reapers are the angels, the, the bad seeds or the weeds are the sons of the evil one, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, the farmer who sows them is the son of man. He just listed them all out and in verse 40 he says, here's what I'm trying to teach you, just as the weeds are gathered and burned, so it will be at the end of the age. His point, his point in this parable is eschatological. Eschatology is the study of last things, or the end times. Everybody wants to know about the end times. When you study the end times, you're studying eschatology. And the purpose of this parable is eschatological. And that's important because all of the New Testament, all New Testament hope is an eschatological hope. It all looks forward to the end. All of it. Now, when you hear that, you might say, wait a second, wait a second. I have a hope now. I'm experiencing salvation now, and that is true. When you become a Christian, you are saved. And if you are a Christian, you've been saved, past tense, from the, the penalty of sin. You no longer have to worry about punishment. But you're also regularly being saved from the power of sin as as the Spirit of God fills you and you're sanctified, you're released more and more from the power of sin over your life. But even then, you're still looking forward. I hope we're all looking forward to the day when we will be completely free from the presence of sin. Set free from the penalty and the power, and then someday, the presence. We're all looking forward to that day. All New Testament hope has some sort of future vision to it. We're all looking down into the future, waiting and longing to be freed from the presence of sin and to see our Savior and to be with Him. And so when we see that this parable is an eschatological parable, we need to understand that this is massive. It's very important as it pertains to the entire New Testament and helps us understand a lot about Everything the New Testament teaches. So he says, just as the weeds will be burned, so it will be, and here's what we're looking forward to, at the end of the age. That's what we're looking forward to. The end. Now Jesus told us that the harvest, in verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age. The time for uprooting the Weeds and the plants and separating everything out, gathering your weeds, burning the or gathering your wheat and burning the weeds. That's the harvest. And then he says, the harvest is the end. So the, the time frame for the consummation of all things when it's all done is the end. The end of the age. That's what we're looking forward to. So, so it will be at the end of the age. Now I want to take a minute and let's talk a little more about this idea of the end of the age. Two weeks ago we, we broke into it, but I want to talk a little more about it. I believe that this will be helpful in understanding the time frame that Jesus is speaking of here. And I want to answer a couple questions again. How many ages are there? Which we are, may already know this. But how does the Bible speak of these different ages? First point under this heading, the Bible tells of two ages. Two. This is a recap from before in Matthew 12, 32. Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the definite article, age to come. So there's this age, and then there's 
the age to come. Not an age to come, the age to come. And then in Ephesians 1.21, Paul speaking, speaking of how God the Father has placed Christ, he says he's placed Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This age and the one to come. This age or the age to come. There's this one and the next one. So how many ages are there? The Bible tells us of two ages. Both Jesus and Paul agree that there's this age and the age to come. One now and one in the future. One we're living in and one we're looking forward to. You have two options that you can live in according to Scripture. You can live in this age or you can live in the next age. Why does that matter? Some of you are thinking, well, why is that important? The Bible makes no reference to a thousand year millennial age. The only time a thousand year millennium is ever mentioned is in Revelation chapter 20. But there's no reference anywhere that there will be this age and then something's going to happen somewhere, sometime, another age, a gap, and then another age. It's this age and then there's another age. There are two ages. Second point, what does the Bible tell us about this age? How will we know if we're living in this age? And how will we know we're living in the age to come? Well, the second heading, the nature of this present age. Well, we already read in Ephesians 1.21, Christ rules over all things in this age. So Christ rules. He rules and reigns in this age. But another passage of Scripture, Galatians 1.4 says, speaking of Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So, Paul says there that the present age is an evil age, and it is an age that Jesus was sent by the will of the Father to deliver us from. That's the present age. Another one, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says in their case, speaking of the unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world, the word for world there is ion, age, the same word, the God of this world, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So when we're speaking of this present age, Satan is referred to as the God of this evil age. It's so evil that he's referred to as its God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world. And that's the same word, age. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul says, don't be pressed into the mold of the way of thinking of this age, this present world. This age, this world is not characterized by anything a Christian should ever want to be. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So when Paul would preach and Paul would teach, he says, I'm not imparting a wisdom that has anything to do with this age. It is a, a, a wisdom that has to do with another age. He says, speaking of the rulers of this age, they're doomed to pass away. So we learn from that that this age and the things of this age are temporal. They're not going to last forever. They're not eternal. So that's how the Bible speaks of the present age, okay? How does the Bible speak of the age to come? Again, Ephesians 1.21 Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ has all authority in the age to come. He will continue to reign. In Luke chapter 18, verses 29 and 30, Jesus speaking says, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in the age, and in the age to come eternal life. We read this from several weeks ago. The age to come is characterized by eternal life for those who have sacrificed for God's kingdom. Therefore, the age to come must be an eternal age, whereas this age is not eternal. Luke chapter 20, this is very important. Verses 34 through 36, Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So we learn that the coming age is an age that requires a certain amount of worth and evaluation if you have to be worthy to attain to it. We learn that the resurrection from the dead is directly connected to the coming age. We learn that there is no marriage in the coming age. What's implied from that? If there is no marriage, that means there's no generational uh, transfer. There's, there's no reproduction. No children who will be born and grow and get old. No reproduction. It says that those who are a part of that age cannot die. Therefore, that's eternal life. Again, immortality if you make it to the next age. And those who attain to that age are sons of the resurrection. They will be the last of all humanity. That will be the end. There won't be more people than those who were in that age. So, what do we learn? In this age, Christ rules and Christ reigns. There's evil. This age is to be spurned. This age is temporal. This age has life and death. This age is full of ungodly wisdom, ungodly patterns. And Jesus Christ was sent into the world to die to deliver His people from this age. But the age to come is an eternal age where there will be no marrying, no birth, no generations, no death, where Christ continues to rule for all eternity. Now, here's the big eschatological question, the big end times debate. What's the separation between the ages? How do we know when this age is going to end and the next age begin? What happens in between them? And we have several options that are held by Bible-believing Christians. Option one, when this age ends and before the next age begins, there will be a thousand years of peace and righteousness on the earth. This age will end, there will be a thousand years of peace and righteousness, and then the age will come. The eternal age begins. Or there's another option. This age, the, the temporal age will end. Christians will be taken up to meet Christ in the air where will, they will then make a U-turn and come back to the earth to live for a thousand years before then the eternal age begins at that point. Or there's a third option. The, this age ends. Then after... Three and a half years of tribulation, Christians will be taken up into heaven with Christ for three and a half more years to then come back to the earth for a thousand years to live on the earth until the end of that thousand years and then the eternal age begins. Or there's option number four. The day of the Lord comes. There's the separation of the wicked and the righteous. This age ends and the next one begins. What does Jesus say? Verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age. And there's only one more age. There's only two options. Nothing that we read in this parable makes mention of a gap. It says, this age will end, there'll be a harvest, or there might be some good and some bad that live on the earth for a time, and, but Jesus is going to reign for that time, and then, then when He gets done reigning, then He's going to do away with all the, the evil and the, the wicked, and then He's going to judge everybody. After He's already done away with them, He's going to bring them back out of hell and judge them again. It doesn't say any of that. It says, the end will come, this age will end, and the next age will begin. So what does Jesus teach in this parable will happen at the end of the age? When we talk about 
the end times. It's often said when people are polled in churches and they say, what's the, the thing you want to, the book of the Bible you want to learn about the most? And they say, the book of Revelation. And they ask preachers, what's the book that's preached on the least? And they say, the book of Revelation. People want to hear it, but nobody's preaching it. And the people want to hear about the book of Revelation because they want to know about the end times because they assume the book of the Revelation is about the end times. What if the book of Revelation is not necessarily just about the end times? What if Jesus lays out everything we need to know about the end times right here? What if I could teach us everything we need to know about the end times from the Gospel of Matthew? That doesn't mean we won't go to Revelation ever. I'd love to teach through the book of Revelation because it's all about Jesus and His triumph over all things, but everything we need to know about the end times is right here. Three things will happen at the end of the age. Judgment. Bodily resurrection, renewal of all things. In verses 41 through 43, we have a detailed explanation of the process of the separation at the end of the age. Verses 41 and 42, we have the judgment. The separation of the wicked unto judgment. Verse 41 says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. The Son of Man will send His angels the, and gather out causes of sin and lawbreakers. That's sons of the evil one, sons of Satan, those who are under the power of the God of this age, those who have been planted by Satan to cause Christ's people to stumble, to try to entangle them, to, to choke out their witness. The weeds, the angels are going to come, the reapers will come and gather out all of them, all of those whose lives are characterized by the same traits that characterize this present age, evil and ungodliness and disobedience. Listen to this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and notice the common language. Make a note of this, and, and go back and study this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and just notice the correlations between this and what Jesus is teaching. He says, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you, or those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, and here's when He's going to do it, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, that would be the, the reapers, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, that would be judgment on causes of sin and lawbreakers, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The vengeance of the Lord will be served when Jesus is revealed from heaven in the fire, flaming fire with His mighty angels, the reapers. Jesus comes, the reapers come, they all come at once bringing judgment. And what is that judgment, Jesus says? He will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now for the Jewish mind, when they heard fiery furnace, that would have taken their minds back the book of Daniel, when they read of their, their kinsmen before them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had been thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow the knee to anyone but Yahweh. And they said, that's it, throw them in the furnace. Heat it up and burn them. And, and they, they came out alive, unscathed, not a hair on their head was burned. They didn't even smell like smoke. The fiery furnace... But here Jesus is not speaking of exile or Babylon. He's speaking of the flames of hell. The sons of Satan will be thrown into the flames of hell where they, where they will spend all of eternity with no relief. He says it will throw them into the fiery furnace and that place there will be weeping. Weeping. Uncontrollable. Crying for pain, and gnashing of teeth, gritting your teeth. You've been there. Maybe you've seen in movies, in the, in the cowboy movies, and they're digging a bullet out, and they give them something to bite on. Why do you do that? Why do you grit your teeth in pain when you're in pain? It's because you think, I could grit my teeth possibly hard enough that even if I break my teeth off, the pain will take, the, take my mind off of the other pain. I just want some sort of force of pressure to take my mind off of the other pain I'm feeling. Weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Literal, conscious, eternal torment is what Jesus is speaking of here. And the pain and the agonies of hell are simply indescribable. We can't fathom this. In Revelation chapter 14, verse, verses 10 and 11, speaking of the unbeliever, it says, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. Full strength. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is how the Bible describes the eternal, conscious torment of hell. Jonathan Edwards one time tried to describe it like this. He said, just imagine, most of us have been burned. Maybe you've touched your hand in a fire and, and when that happens, the, the natural human reflex is to pull your hand back as fast as you can. But imagine you left your hand in the fire for just a second. The pain, it's the worst pain we can think of is to be burned. But imagine you left your hand in the fire for a minute, 60 seconds, physical contact with a flame. We can't, we can't imagine that. It's, it's undescribable. But then he says, but just imagine that you then leave your hand in there for an hour, 60 minutes, direct physical contact to an open flame. Now, in this present life, we would probably just pass out from the pain after just a few minutes. But imagine that you could leave your hand in there for an hour or maybe, maybe even 24 hours, a whole day, direct physical contact to a flame. And then he said, then imagine staying in there for a month, direct physical contact to a flame. Or, or imagine a year, 12 months, in a flame with your flesh being burned. And then imagine it for five years, ten years. A hundred years. A thousand years. Imagine being in, in, in literal, physical, direct contact to the flames of hell for ten million years with no relief. You can't get out. There's no breaks. The Bible says the smoke of their torment goes up forever. You can't pass out from the pain. It's that bad, but we can't even fathom. And even as I describe it in my mind, I can't comprehend the eternal torment of hell. And at the end of the age, that will be the portion of everyone who is an unbeliever. And I, and I said a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week, this is not just those who are savagely antagonistic towards Christ and towards Christians. This is the nicest kindest old lady that you've ever met. Maybe she's just not a Christian. She's just not a believer. That will be her portion for all of eternity. When the harvest comes, there will be no second chances and no turning back. I read something on Facebook this week that says people, something to the effect of people today don't like to hear the word repent and the people in hell would love to hear it one more time. That's false. The people in hell don't want to hear the word repent. They hate God. They hate Christ. They don't want to hear the gospel. If they could be brought out of the flames of hell to be face to face with Christ, they would curse Him to His face again because they are still dead in their sin and they would have been turned over to their sin. They don't want to repent. They'll be in conscious torment for all of eternity. Jesus says that will happen. This is a promise from Jesus when the end of the age comes, they will be gathered and thrown into the fiery furnace. The judgment is inflicted at the end of the age when Christ returns. Verse 43, we have the separation of the righteous unto glory. It says, then, that is at that time, the same time, at the, at the time of the harvest, 
the same time that the wicked are being cast into the flames of hell, he says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So we have here the second thing that will happen at the end of the age. First is judgment. The second thing is the bodily resurrection. Now you might ask, where did I get bodily resurrection and, and how does that come in here? And the answer to that question is to ask another question. Where does Jesus get this idea of shining like the sun? What does that even mean? Are we going to be glowing orbs floating around in the sky? No, that's not what He means. He gets this from Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble as has never, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forevermore. Again, when Jesus says the righteous will shine like the sun, this is another Old Testament reference shortened but assumed in, his, in its entirety. When the Jews heard this, when Matthew's audience heard this, they would have known that he was quoting, he was referencing from Daniel. So we see where Jesus gets this idea, the shining like the sun. But before the shining happens in Daniel, there is the resurrection from the dead. All of those who are asleep in the dust shall awake, will be brought back up. Now I want to read a lengthy passage. And it'll be up here, you guys follow along. I hope this gives you much joy and much hope. This is the passage, 1 Corinthians 15, the passage you go to when you want to learn about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He proceeds to explain what he's saying in essence is, the resurrection don't come like like you went in. You don't come out of the ground the way you went into the ground. Here's how he says it. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as His chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Again, in essence, he's saying, if somebody asks, how are the dead raised? He's saying, listen, don't think that it's going to be like you just come out of the ground the same way you went into the ground. It's just like planting seeds. Everything has different bodies and the way it's sown is not the way that it comes out. Then he begins to explain this is what it's going to be like. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's in reference to this age. What is raised is imperishable. That's the next age. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's a reference to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, that's Christ, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what we have to look forward to. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. 
And 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us that the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus. And so we go into the ground, weak, perishable, broken, many of us old, wrinkled, sickly bodies covered up with dirt. But when we come out with glorified bodies, we will be shining with the radiance of Christ because we are in Christ. Because Christ is in us, we will shine with His brightness. When Jesus says we will shine like the sun, S-U-N, that massive star, the picture is that we will actually shine like the sun, S-O-N, the one who suffered and died and then was raised so that we too would be raised at the end of the age. And so there is judgment. But at the end of the age, the righteous, those who belong to Christ, will be separated out and we will be escorted into the glory of our Father and His Son. We will be raised into imperishable bodies that can never die. The passage says we will will bear the image of the man of heaven. What, What kind of body did Jesus have when He came back from the dead? Was He floating around and had kind of a cloud about Him? And he, and he, people tried to touch him and they, they fell through him? No. He walked and he talked and he spoke. He, he cooked some fish on the beach. He, he ate broiled fish. They touched him. They felt him. He had a physical body that looked a lot like his, phys, or his, his previous body except it can never die. It's imperishable. And we will be raised with this kind of body. So we have here a great promise. And then just for fun, I just threw this in there just because it's fun to talk about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. The third thing that will happen at the end of the age is the renewal of all things. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to His promise, we are awaiting awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Romans 8 says that all of creation is, is waiting in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God, that's us. So so here's the picture. We're going to come back shining like the sun with the glory that Christ has given us and if this earth were the earth that had to contain us, this earth would just explode because it couldn't contain our glory. He's going to have to remake a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation just to house the glory with which we will shine when we are resurrected. He's going to renew all things for us. So judgment, resurrection, renewal of all things at the end of the age. This age ends, the eternal age begins. Jesus makes it clear in this parable, the separation of the wicked unto judgment and the righteous unto glory is inevitable. It's going to happen. We have this hope but not until the end of the age. And so we're waiting. We, that, that's the whole point of a hope. You don't hope for what you have, what you can see. You hope for what you cannot see. So we're longing for it and we're waiting for it. And the separation of the wicked unto judgment and the righteous unto glory is the event that separates this age and the age to come. The temporal and the eternal. So by way of application, three sort of quick points. We have our time frame here. The eschatological debate is over. It's done. We know everything that's going to happen at the end end of time. Except for it's unexpected. We know that it's going to be at the end, but we just don't know when the end is going to be. Jesus says in Matthew 24, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. How does the Father know something that the Son does not know? I'm not a trinity. Jesus in His earthly nature was not given the ability to understand some things that the Father knew. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when a thief's coming. It's unexpected. The purpose of what the Bible teaches about the end of time is not to sit around with a globe and a newspaper and a calendar and a red Sharpie marker and try to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. The goal of what the Bible teaches is to teach us it's inevitable. He's coming back. Get ready and live like it could be now. Or live like it's tomorrow. 
always live as though it was near. As Paul would say, make the best use of the time, for the days are evil. Second point. In this passage, we have a very severe warning. We must be prepared for the coming judgment. Are you a son of Christ, a son of the kingdom? Or are you a son of the evil one? Have you been born again of God's Spirit? Are you looking to Christ and Him alone for your righteousness? If not, if you think that something you are doing is going to earn your favor before God, then if the end should come today, you have only judgment to look forward to. The flames of hell are all the hope you have. But, if you are a Christian, number three, we have a great promise. When Christ returns, if we're alive when He returns, our bodies will be transformed, will be taken up to meet Him in the air where we will rule and reign with Him forever. If, our, if we're dead, if our bodies are in the ground or whatever, scattered out across the ocean or mangled in a ditch somewhere, it won't matter. If we're dead, He's going to take that body, He's going to put it back together in a glorified state, take us back to be with Him where we will rule and reign with Him forever. So be hopeful. We have a great hope. It's coming, but not until the end of the age. Until then, Christ rules, Christ reigns. He's bringing all things into subjection to Him. We do not yet see all things in subjection to Him, but He's doing it. The Bible says He will triumph over every enemy, the last enemy being death. He will triumph over every enemy. So the question then becomes, how in the world has this kingdom, or will this kingdom go from Jesus, one man, to disciples, the apostles, to the New Testament church, which seemed like it was really flourishing, to the church now, which sometimes looks bleak, to at some point in the future, all things are under His footstool. How's that going to happen? That's next week. Let's pray.